we've been talking a good bit about poetry, or I have, and introducing what I'm assuming must be new ways of looking at poetry. I hope they are. I hope these are enlightening um, talks for you. Um, you <laughs> we can't have been together this long and you not know how important poetry is to me or how deep my beliefs in it go. This is a, this doesn't belong to the category of the lyrics. Um, in, in that category, I'm including the Psalms because you know that those are the first lyrics. They precede the Greek lyric poets who wrote, um, I'm not even sure when Democrates, you know, fourth century BC, Sappho and Greek poets like that. The Psalms preceded them by centuries. Um, but the word lyric comes from lyre, which is the instrument that accompanied the Psalms. So when David wrote his Psalms or the other Psalmists, they did it with, um, they, they certainly wouldn't have intellectualized it the way do, we do. They would have done it understanding that in the lyric, the poet or the psalmist was expressing the deepest feelings in his heart. And in the Psalms, you know that they're all for God. They're all um, prayers, expressions of a love or a guilt or a shame for um, what's inside the psalmist's soul. We don't look at Proverbs in that same light. It's not a lyric in the same sense. It, it doesn't belong to the category of Psalms. But, but it's, it's lyrical in a sense in, um, that lots of the passages from the Old Testament share qualities with the Psalm. If you look at the Psalms, you know that all of them employ at, a most, at the most basic level, parallelism, contrast, um, analogies, the, the very elements that make up poetry. So even though they don't seem explicitly lyrical in, in the way a modern lyric would be to our ears, they are lyrics, they are lyrics. Pro this passage from Proverbs is not a lyric in that sense, but it's lyrical. The, the, the psalmist, the, um, who, or, or the prophet writing the, the Proverbs, has the same ear for parallelism, contrast, analogies, and um, this, this sense of a love of God greater than anything else in the world. That's the focus of the whole Old Testament. So I want to read this, but my reason for choosing it is because in this, in this particular passage, if you're not familiar with it, the prophet is really, in an amazing way to me, describing the word. Okay, now just hold on just for a second. Because you know in the, in the, in the Psalms, David and the other psalmists are speaking directly to God about actual personal experiences. David betrayed God, he sinned. There's that long Psalm 51, I can't remember which one it is, is that long lament. He's, he's asking for mercy. It's almost always read during Lent, during that period when, we, when we're, we're asked to enter into a period of, of uh, grieving for our sins. So David had those things on his mind. Um, Remember that um, we, we get descriptions of the Psalms of God creating the earth. He's, putting, he's described as a craftsman, putting down lines and weights and you know, calculating what he's going to do in his creation. But I'm not aware of another passage in which he actually describes something before creation. Okay? Here in Proverbs, I believe what the, the prophet is describing is the word. Now, hold on just for a second. Think about this. 
Before creation, there was the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Creation didn't exist then. And we understand from our faith that the Word was the means of creation. The one who made the creation was the Word, the Son of the Father. He was the means of bringing it in. That's interesting because, remember, he's an image of the Father. He's, he's the Father's concept of himself. When the Father conceives of himself, that begets the Word, his Son. That's why he's called eternal. He's one with the Father. He wasn't, he wasn't there before. Nobody else was. He wasn't there after. He is one with him. And the love between the Father and Son is the Spirit. So this is before time as we know it. Okay? In this particular passage, the, the prophet is describing, I think, the word. Most people think of the prophet as describing wisdom. But if you make the connection, you'll see it. Because the word is the Father's wisdom. He's an expression of it. But this is, this is the one, I believe, who will be the means of creation. So just keep that on your mind as I read it, okay? If you've, if you've not thought about it that way, it seems to me this is, this is what the poet's doing, the, the prophet. And it's amazing. Because for one of these rare times in the Old Testament, we're, taking back, we're taken back to a point before creation... The, the poet can't refer to things as we know it, except by metaphors or analogies. He's going back before there were images or things, or we're back in eternity um, with the, the wisdom or the sun delighting, delighting in what creation does. Okay? So hold that thought in mind. That even though, even though Christ has not entered the world, even though creation may not have begun or has just begun, um, this has to do with, <laughs> I want to call it a moment before time, but there was no moment, there was no time before time. This is, this is wisdom preceding creation as we know it. Okay? So, Proverbs. And notice the use of begot, because in our creed we talk about Christ, the Son, is begotten. He was not made. He is one with the Father because he's the concept of the Father's self. That's the Son. Does everybody understand that when I use those terms? Because I know they're very abstract. The Father's concept of himself is the Son. That's why he's co-eternal. He's begotten, not made. Proverbs. The Lord begot me, the beginning of his works, the forerunner of his deeds of long ago. From of old I was formed at the first before the earth. When there were no deeps, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains or springs of water. Notice how he's talking about something that wasn't yet in terms of those things that have come to be. Mountains, springs, because those are the things we know. Yeah? We, we can relate to them by analogy because we know what a mountain is, what a spring is, right? When there were no deeps, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains or springs of water, before the mountains were settled into place. Before the hills, I was brought forth. When the earth and the fields were not yet made, nor the first clods of the world. When he established the heavens, there was I. When he marked out the vault over the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he fixed fast the springs of the deep. When he set forth the sea its limit so that the waters should not transgress his command. When he fixed the foundations of earth, then was I beside him as an artisan, an artist, an artisan, a craftsman, 
I was his delight day by day, playing before him all the while, playing over the whole of his earth, having my delight with human beings. It's wisdom, it's the sun playing in the fields of the Lord. It's an amazing image, it's the word. Um, you know that from the beginning I've been arguing that's the source of all poetry, even if we don't see it that way anymore. Okay, let's, let's start. Oops, God. I got busy with Tim. Mm -mm. Okay, I want everybody to take a close look at the board and notice the outline. Pay, cl <laughs> pay close attention to it. God. <laughs> Thanks for the charity. God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. What do I do? Here, I've got, an, I've got a, a, a second surprise for you all tonight. Um, I'm going to make a change in the reading schedule. It's going to put us back two weeks. Don't. Um, um, Cheryl's been so persistent with me for the last two weeks with these questions about tragedy and they're serious, really serious to me, um, that I've wanted to answer them. I'm going to turn to that um, um, directly in a minute. But I've been doing Anthony and Cleopatra over at St. Francis and um, it, it's, it just coincidentally, it, it, it coincided with the work that we were doing with Merchant and Othello and all's well. But I wanted to go back from the beginnings of modernity to the last point in history before Christ enters the world. So one of the questions I've been putting in that group is this. Um, what was God, and I want everybody to hear this because this is gonna move me forward for the next couple of weeks. Because the purpose, of the, the purpose of this class is twofold. One is to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. I'm hoping that the work that we're doing together will help um, people open their eyes to see more deeply, to open their hearts, to. Um, in the way that poets can help us do that so that we can see and feel better than we do. So we can grow, we can become closer to Christ. That's one. The second is it's really passing on a tradition because um, you know from the readings that we're doing that where that tradition is absent, people are actually going around blind. They just don't see. Traditions are multi-leveled. They're multifaceted. They carry time with them. So that whatever degree to which we carry traditions within us, they're a part of the way we see the world, our vision is, the depth of our vision is increased. We see better, we see more, we're aware of more, we feel more. So one of the purposes of the class is to recover that tradition. It, it should be for Catholics because that's our, we don't believe that you just stop and say, I believe in Christ, he's my Lord, you go on. Um, we bring something different to our faith. There should be a greater depth. Except we live in a world in which our Catholic faith has lost that tradition, that depth. And my hope is that we can recover it here together. So that's a serious thing for me. Um, we've been dealing with works on the threshold of modernity. Merchant, Othello, All's Well are there. We're learning something about the modern world from the perspective of, I think, 
probably one of the most brilliant persons who's, who's ever lived on this earth. That's Shakespeare. In Anthony and Cleopatra, he's writing a play um, dealing with um, a Roman world just before Christ enters the world. And one of the things that he's doing with that is um, representing that world exactly as the Romans would do it. It's going to be one of the problems that I'm going to present to you next week. Exactly as the Romans do it and exactly as a modern secular historian would do it. He's going to be absolutely faithful to what was happening in Rome. The civil wars, um, Caesar's battle with Anthony and Cleopatra, what they do. In fact, let me give it away. They're going to, they're going to take their lives. The, the end of that, I, mean, I, I hate giving away endings. I do. Um, it, it's going to end like Othello. Except in this case, it's going to be a man and a woman. And, but what he's doing with a sexual problem, and I'm hoping it's clear right now, that's been one of the major concerns of every play we've read. That after the fall, there is this estrangement between men and women. Before the fall, all of our love was directed towards God and a fullness of our love towards each other. Once we fell, that love turned away from God to ourselves. There's something selfish in us. So this, the relationships between the sexes forever has been strained, to say the very least. Thelo kills Desdemona. So in, in Anthony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare's going to show a Roman world just before Christ comes into the world. And the question that I want to hang over the class for the, our time of that is, what was God doing before Christ came into the world? That's a really serious question for him. We, we so fix ourselves in Christ coming in, and we lose a historical perspective. We don't go back to the myths, the Iliad, the Odyssey, or even the Old Testament. Shakespeare's doing something that no Roman could have done, even though he's absolutely faithful. He does nothing to change facts, facts absolutely nothing. But what he's doing raises questions that a, that a Roman could never have imagined. And I don't want to give it away, but let me just ask the question, because I'm going to ask you all to read it for next week. Is, is Shakespeare showing us Christ present in that world before he came? Now remember, According to our belief, Father, Son, Holy Spirit all coexist. They're indwelling eternally. According to Paul, who is absolutely right in this, the Son empties himself. Imagine that. Godhead. He's one with God who is infinite and eternal. Infinite and eternal. The Son. He emptied God. That to me is one of the most amazing miracles at the center of our faith and nobody ever thinks about it. He empties himself. How does God do that? He empties himself and takes on a human form. So he moves from a condition of um, eternity, infiniteness, takes on a mortal condition. The creator takes on the role of a part of his creation and um, limits himself. He becomes a finite creature and mortal, and he'll go to a cross. So that son had to be present Always before Christ entered the world. Was he present in anything going on before Christ came? Is that clear? What was God doing before Christ came? And to ask that implies what was the Son doing before Christ came? Are you following? So I want to deal with this question of tragedy. Because um, um, Cheryl's not easily satisfied in what I've said, and I'm glad for it. Um, I want, because I, there's a serious question about reading. I don't, I think I've said this to you, I don't believe we read very well. I think we think we do and we don't. 
And I'm concerned here not to lose a chance to look at what's going on with tragedy because it, it's a view we've lost. So we've, we've done these plays on the threshold of modernity. I want to go back just before Christ comes to look at what Shakespeare does then. And that will take us back to the ancient world. So I'm going to spend a couple of weeks on Anthony and Cleopatra. And I'm raising those questions for you now. Um, when, you get, when you get three quarters of the way through that play, you're going, to, you're going to see a play that could have been written by any modern historian or ancient historian. There would be no sense of God or the divine. In fact, there won't be even to the end of it. But three quarters through that play, everything is going to be defined by state politics, exactly like our modern world. Except the two major characters are caught up in those politics, the civil wars, the civil wars in Rome, the war between Rome and Egypt. A man and a woman are going to come together who completely identify themselves with their political structures, Rome, Egypt. Something's going to happen. It's going to be absolutely faithful to the Roman record of it. Is Shakespeare just giving us that, or is he giving us something more? It's a tragedy, okay? So what I want to do, I hope this will help in the way that we read. Because as I've said before, I don't think we read very well. We all think we do because we're educated. And you already know from my position, it's that education that so often gets in the way. We think we know everything and... So what I'd like to do next week is finish up Oswell. We'll take the first part of the class. And then I'd like to start Anthony and Cleopatra. And we'll spend a couple weeks on that. And then when we're finished with that, we'll, we'll, we're back in the ancient world. We'll go back to the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid. Okay? Yeah? Would you clarify that we're not going to be meeting Thanksgiving? Well, let me just ask you, um, because there's not two classes. Um, we can skip Thanksgiving week. It's a Tuesday or we can meet. Any, any preferences? Is there a reason for not meeting that week for you guys? We'll be, because it, it's understandably, it's a busy week. Anybody who would not like to meet that week, that Tuesday of Thanksgiving week? Connie, you can't make that night? Out of town? Okay, let's skip that week. You owe me. <laughs> Let's skip that week, okay? It'll give you, I think, another week on, on Anthony and Cleopatra. I'm not, I'm, honestly, I'm not sure where we are, but we'll spend a couple of weeks on Anthony and Cleopatra, and then we're done with that. We will start the Iliad. Um, and I think you're going to be amazed um, by what we do with the Iliad and the Odyssey. I, tr I think you'll be truly amazed. But Okay, so that's what we'll do. We're going to start it next week. So, um, and don't feel, we'll spend a couple weeks on it. I'll just start it. Next week, I'm going to just raise some questions and look at some things in the beginning. It'll be a setup week. In fact, the first couple of nights will probably be set up for what happens at the end. Is there a It's all, just get a Folger, it's just inexpensive. It, you can go to the library. It's going to be the same because it's act and scenes. There's no page number. Just. Because when, when I reference it, it'll be act, scene, and line. So my suggestion is just go back online again and get a Folgers or a Signet. They're really cheap. And read, you know, read an act or two before next week just to get into it, just to get going. What I'm going to do is just lay the play out. I'm going to set out some things and some major concerns and get you going. 
and I, just to look forward. This is one of the things I'm going to do. This is going to be interesting to you. Um, I'm going to introduce this notion of the apophatic. Apophatic. Those in theology would know it, I think, well. Apophatic knowledge is mystical knowledge. There are two great traditions in the West. One of them is called um, the via affirm the, the way of the affirmation of images, the way of affirmation of images. That's Dante, the way of affirmation of of what we know. The apophatic is a knowledge by what we don't know. It's the dark night of the soul. It's mystical knowledge. Okay. I'll just make this generalization to make it clear. If you look at most artwork in the West, it's almost always filled up. It's like Westerners are nervous about empty spaces or silences. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. If you look at Eastern art, there's, there's a lack of fear about empty spaces, silences. Everything doesn't have to be filled up. It's much quieter. So, and, and there are extraordinary mystical traditions in the East, particularly in India. Um, so, the apophatic tradition has to do with um, a, a knowledge by things we don't know. And what you'll discover, I hope, when you're reading Anthony and Cleopatra, is that everywhere through that play, Shakespeare keeps using metaphors like gaps, absences, vacancies, things that are not there. Why would he do that? Why? Why? It, it, you've, I mean, you guys are training Shakespeare scholars. You didn't. Even, you know, you've read a number of plays now. When you go from these plays to that one, you're going to read it, and there's no way to read it and not be aware he's dealing with absences, gaps, vacancies, constantly. Things are seen in terms of that. Why? Why? What's he doing? What's he doing? This is just before Christ enters the world. The three major plays that Shakespeare did on the Roman world were Coriolanus, Julius Caesar, and Anthony Cleopatra. Coriolanus is the beginning of the Roman Republic. That's us. We're the modern Republic. Our ultimate model is Rome, Greece and Rome, but Rome in terms, in terms of our Republican nature. Coriolanus, Julius Caesar marks a threat to the Republic because remember, Caesar was looked at as a god. He was killed, Brutus and Cassius killed him because they saw him as a threat to the Republican ideal. That if you made one man a god, it gave him an extraordinary power when the Republic rested on the belief that one man is a man. Some were not better than others. It, it was supposed to be a place where all men could exist as men. For Caesar to, to take on the imperial power, the power of a divine, was to threaten the roots of the Republic. He was murdered. A civil war takes place involving um, Caesar and Anthony who go after the assassins, Brutus and Cassius. That civil war concluded just before this play opens. And we're going to feel the presence of civil wars, of, of these battles that the Romans keep wanting to have done with, keep going on. This is the world just before Christ comes into the world. Shakespeare's Catholic. Um, is he doing something in that play, knowing that Christ is about to come in, that most historians could never deal with? He's a poet. So when you read that play, just keep those questions in mind, okay? 
go online, order, or go to the library, just pick up a, you know, an inexpensive copy, Anthony and Cleopatra, and we'll, we'll start it next week, and we'll finish as well next week, too, okay? So now if you'll turn to my outline on the board. God, God, number one, one of the questions we've been dealing with in the last couple of weeks is, can we see Christ at work in the figures that Shakespeare is presenting to us? And I've suggested she, he's there in Portia, quite clearly. Um, I think he's there in Helena. Some of you may disagree. I think it's a serious question that we should be entertaining whether he's not there in Othello and Desdemona. Remember, too, along those lines, according to our faith, nobody, nobody, nobody will get to heaven who's not sinless. We shall see him like he is. We will be like him. If you read the Divine Comedy, you, you will know as, as they leave purgatory and go up to heavens that more and more people are resembling Christ because they've been purified. So nobody will go to heaven in sins. Either we go to heaven because we've become sinless here, which is what we believe the saints do, or we go to purgatory. But the condition to getting to heaven is we acknowledge our sins. We don't deny them. That's why, that's why confession is so important. We recognize our sins. We recognize them and do something about them. Othello recognized his sins horribly, and he did something about them. He didn't deny them. Or put it differently, does Iago recognize his sins? Does he regret them? He's demonic. Absolutely not. So I, even if there's differences here, I'd like everybody at least entertain that idea. You know, is, um, what, what do we learn about this man and his circumstances and what he did? We've gone through it, so I don't want to go back, but hold on to that question. Where's Christ? Where do we see him? Um, have we seen him in the characters? Will we see him in Helena? Um, we've been dealing with misreadings. We can't read a play without being aware that almost all of the characters in the play do not understand what's going on. Does anybody in, in Merchant of Venice understand fully what Portia's doing? How extraordinary she is? Even when... Even when uh, Lorenzo at the end says, when Portia enters Belmont, and he says, hark the music, does he have a clue of what that means? If she's music and poetry, and does he, does he even begin to understand that? I don't think so. The only one who understands it is Shakespeare, and I, I hope good readers. Same with um, um, Othello. Who in that play understands what's going on besides us and the poet? He's teaching us to see things when nobody else does. Every one of the characters in that play misreads. We're back in Plato's cave. The serious question that I've been posing to everybody is, if we take that allegory seriously and apply it to our own lives, do we understand that we, we will not get out of the cave until we begin to question ourselves what we know? Because so long as we think we've got all the answers, we're stuck. So we, we misread a lot. We don't read well. And educated people, I think, are particularly given to the fault because we're educated. You know, we're taught to, that we know. So one of the things that the poetry is showing us is, the, is that how poorly we read. We just don't see very well. And the poet is helping us to see better and to feel. 
to bring our feelings more in line with the truth, the greater truth, okay? Um, so, one of the things we should be seeing is the danger. Very often we read for our own ideas. I'm trusting everybody sees that. If you're cynical, if you're sentimental, if you're Marxist, if you're Freudian, if you're feminist, you're going to look at the world through a certain lens and you'll find what you want to find. Will you see what's there? My answer to that is, no, you won't. Because you've already got a preconception in your head. Very often people read the Bible, they will quote passages. And they will give a meaning to a passage that's really not consonant with a deeper meaning. So the claim that I've been making all along is we don't read well. And one of the things we've got to learn to do is read for holes. Because we'll never understand the, a part without seeing that part in light of a whole. You know this from yourselves. Go through the reading of Othello the first time. Do you have any clue of what any passage means the first time when you don't know the whole thing? You'll never see the implications of it. Go back and you read it and you go, holy cow, I missed it. Because there's no way you could have seen it. You didn't know the whole. We know that from novels. We know that from stories. Okay? We don't read well. We, and we, we can't so long as we don't read for holes. And when we do, what we learn is the meaning of any particular scene grows in depth because it carries the whole with it. So if we're going to look at the end of Othello, for example, can we really do justice to it if we don't put the whole play in that ending? Take everything that's gone on. Okay? So poetry is teaching us to read for holes, like a piece of music. Cut the music in half, you all know what the effect will be. You will you feel frustrated, incomplete, something won't, something won't be right. Um, Okay, finally, tragedy, okay. I want to do this, um, we're in a comedy, um, but what I'm saying about tragedy will apply to comedy as well in, um, in an opposite way, okay? But the parallels will be, um, I think, pretty evident. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, Doc Doom, can you, is Tim? Sorry. I should have. Wait, Doc, it might be here. Go ahead and that's another. I don't know if this is one of those. I hope it's an erasable thing. I have a dryer. Do you? Great. Teachers do not get the blessings they deserve. Here, let me. Try. Thanks. Okay. Wait. Wait. Okay, according to Aristotle, 
the plot, which is the series of episodes, this happens, this happens, Antonio's sad, Bassanio comes to him to ask for a loan, they go to Shylock. If you took a look at the form of every play, every good play, you'd see it unfolds in this way. There's an opening problem, there's a complication, and there's a crisis, a denouement, and a resolution. That's true of all music. And by the way, interesting, if you were to read St. Thomas Aquinas's questions, every one of those questions take the same exact form. Opening questions, complication, um, and I answer that the truth, a resolution, answering all the problems. Exactly the same form, exactly. Thanks, thank you. So, a couple of things here. One is, I've said it before, every work of art, a play, a good work of drama, implies God. It has a completed action. It answers a problem and it overcomes it. It always ends in a good. Even in a tragedy, an evil and injustice is answered. How can that happen? It, all, it always takes the same pattern. Unless it's understood that every evil finally will be overcome. So every play assumes a good greater than whatever evil exists. It assumes a God. Because you can't have a play about 16 different things and all of them ending the same way and not say, either that's a pretty strange coincidence or there's this goodness at work in the world everywhere, whatever the circumstances, right? I hope that's clear because it's one of those obvious things that everybody overlooks and it shouldn't be overlooked. It's so obvious you can think nothing about it. One of the greatest teachers I had said, don't ever overlook the obvious. Don't overlook the obvious. There's always something there. So every play assumes a God. It has a plot, and the plot is an imitation of an action. Okay? So the visible things that are present to us in the story, the things that happen, are an imitation of an interior action, some movement of spirit, something we can't see. Paul would say, we know the invisible things by the things that are made. So if you take any play we've read, take Othello. I mean, think seriously about this. Is Othello at the end, let's leave a question about whether he's damned or not out for a second. Is Othello at the end, or even Desdemona, when she says, nobody, I myself, are they the same people they were at the beginning? Is there any way they can see the world the same way they did earlier? I mean, I'm, I mean think everybody sees it. In the beginning, they're too innocent. Everybody in that world is too innocent. They, they don't take responsibility for evil. Are they innocent at the end? Absolutely not. They've, they've matured in their, in their sight and in their capacity to feel, most especially, their own wrongs, which would change the way they feel towards others. So this, the plot is an imitation of that action, this interior movement. The only way we know about it is through the incidents, okay? He said that all good tragedies have three essential elements. A peripatia, God. An agnorisis and a catharsis. The peripatia is the turn. Something happens. Um, Something happens in our life. We all, we all have experienced these moments. Every epic is going to start with you know, an important, we're in the middle of these problems. 
and it'll lead to a recognition. That's just a fact of life. Um, we're going through life. We think we understand everything. Something happens and we realize we didn't understand things at all, that so much more was going on than we realized. When that happens, our life changes. We don't look at the world the same anymore. We bring a greater depth, an element of suffering, changes the way we see, the way we feel. Um, and it, the, and agnorisis is a recognition. Oedipus, when he realizes he, he was the cause of the problem, even though he saw himself as the solution, that he would be the one to solve the problem. One of the greatest ironies in all tragedy, he persisted in pushing to get an answer on the, what caused the plague, believing he was the smartest one because he was the one that was put in office for that reason in the beginning, he was so smart. And then at, at some point learns that he himself was the cause of the problem. So it's very often our intellectual pride that blinds us, that keeps us from seeing more fully what's going on. So that moment of recognition is crucial and it usually coincides with the turn that something happens. The catharsis is the purging of um, the tragic emotions and the two tragic emotions are pity and fear. I think I've suggested before. They're, they're the most likely because they're the ones who are most likely, that are most likely to paralyze us. Our pity for a child very often leads to enabling in a family, I think we all know that, that very often the pity keeps us from doing hard things. Um, our fear of dangers, that because we don't understand the consequences of our actions all the time, you know that sometimes we have to make decisions without knowing the outcome. It's an awful place to be. Life involves us in risk constantly. We have to make risks. Life is gonna, do we have the courage to take them? Do we have the faith to take them? And even if we do have the faith, we know that having faith doesn't mean we'll be free from horrible consequences. All the saints died, they were martyred. Having faith doesn't protect us. What it does is ensure our trust that there will be some meaning to things we may not see at the time. So all of these things um, were essential to great tragedy. So tragedy is not about bad things happening. That's not what tragedy means. I think I gave the example last time. Joyce said, gave the example of this window shattering and a piece of shard fell and it struck this girl in the heart and killed her and the journalist's response was, was a tragedy. It was not a tragedy. It was an awful thing. A tragedy implies a completed action that has a meaning to it. An accident in itself. You know this. Watch a movie that has nothing but accidents in it. Is it going to satisfy you? It will not. You're sat all of us are satisfied when somebody deals with a problem and somehow overcomes it, particularly if it has to do with love. If we watch a couple, say in a movie, who have to struggle with something deeply human and overcome it, it leaves us, I think, at least, I mean, this is my, I always feel like I'm in the presence of something sacramental that something amazing just happened. How many movies coming out of Hollywood deal with that? You know, it's accidents, machines, heroic guns, blasting, all, you know, the most important human things are ignored. They, they're just, I mean, obviously they're interested in making money. Yeah. So, so, that completed action, so it's not an accident. A tragedy consists of a completed action. It, it moves from an apparent good, a prosperity, to a fall, a decline. 
some problem, some disorder, some injustice enters into the action and it leads to the downfall, the, the decline. So every tragedy takes um, the form of a movement from prosperity to um, a calamity, some wrong, some death. So it goes from good fortune to bad, to bad fortune, okay? And all of these things occur that make it possible to answer whatever injustice or evil entered the play, like Iago. Comedy is the opposite. It, it, it deals with some bad fortune and ends in good fortune. So, for example, Merchant of Venice seems to be headed towards a tragedy, right? Antonio, there's a good likelihood that he'll die. If Portia didn't come into it, he's dead. But you always know, when you start a tragedy, you know you're in a tragic world, or a tra if you're in a comedy, you know you're in a comic world, because it's a part of that action, okay? So a tragedy is an action. It involves a tragic hero, some flaw, some mistake, something he has to deal with. It begins in what appears to be a good fortune, something to be glad about and moves towards some bad fortune. There's a loss. Most tragedies end in a death. Comedies, the opposite. It, it, it begins in what looks to be like a bad fortune and something happens to turn it around. The reversal takes place and it ends. So, um, and, and, and um, Antonio is saved and all of his ships are returned. Miraculously, they all come back. So when we end up in, in Belmont at the end, we, we're left with a sense of wonder this unexpected goodness that wasn't a result of what people planned on. All these good things happen. It's like a, mir a miracle took place. So that's the action. Now, the, the point I want to make here is that tragedy doesn't mean um, it's just about something bad. It's an action. It, it has to have a specific purpose. You know if you take Plato's cave the way I presented it, that we all live in this, this is play, according to Plato, we all live in this cave thinking we understand things and we end up trapped there. It's only the people who begin to question things that come out. Every comedy and tragedy should lead to a clarification of our vision. It's a reaffirmation of reason and wisdom and some goodness in the world. Othello recognizes his wrong. There's a profound, a painful recognition Okay, um, in some sense you can say he, he's a better man, he's, he's better for having seen it. Um, in Merchant of Venice, it looks like Anthony's, or Ant, Antonio is gonna be killed and he's saved because of what Portia does. The action turns and it, it moves us towards that happy ending, okay? So every work in, um, consists of a completed action in that movement, from something good to bad or from something bad to good. And the point that I want to stress, going back to what I said earlier, is the depth of any scene increases. Whatever scene you pick, because of the whole that's implied in it. We may not see the full meaning of it until the end, but there's always something more going on than we realized. And it won't be until we put the whole thing together that we'll see it. The full meaning of it. The wonder of the goodness say, that's at work in Merchant, or even in Othello. I mean, whatever, whatever we say about Othello, there's this awful evil, this horrible evil at work 
but it's answered. Let me, let me try to make that even clearer. In some, I'm thinking of one particular guy who's an imitator of Faulkner. If, if you all have seen, what's the name of that movie? The, the, uh, um, something about, um, no something for old men. No country for old men. Yeah, no country for old men. The, the, the writer of that, really, he's an imitator of Faulkner. He was so moved by Faulkner. But if you watch his movie, that No Country for Old Men, the evil's in charge at the end. That guy's left. It's not answered. You can't read Faulkner and not have evil answered, wherever, wherever he's dealing with it. Because in the great writers, they're aware that there's something greater going on in the world than we see. That's why there's always this resolution. In lots of modern works, that's not so. You can pick up a modern work and evil will survive. It will, it will be superior to any good answering it. That's a modern belief. Take God out of the picture and humans are left to do this evil. Who's going to answer it? It's going to happen. That lead, those works leave me shaken. I mean, I, I, I'm less inclined to go back to them because I don't believe evil's in charge. That's a frightening thing for me because I know lots of people are affected by movies. They're going to come out shaking their heads and saying, yeah, that's the way it is. I don't believe that's so. Um, so tragedy and comedy present us with a completed action. It implies a God. There's a goodness that's diffusive. It's working. It's at work. The poet is the one showing us characters who are dealing with some difficulty and overcoming it. That's what we've been reading. Okay. Now let me stop before I go on. Anybody with any questions? <laughs> In some ways you can say, I mean, it's a stretch, but God's at work in the world. Shakespeare doesn't show, I mean, there are plays in which he gets explicit about the supernatural. I mean, that's one of the extraordinary things about Shakespeare. He, he's so able to be faithful to our natural world as it is. If you go back to Homer, you see the gods coming in and out of the world all the time. Shakespeare will never do that. He, he's faithful to our naturalistic world, but he so handles it to make, to make it impossible not to ask questions. Is God at work in this world? How, how, could, how could these plays keep dealing with different things and coming out okay consistently if he didn't believe that there was this good diffusive everywhere? So even though we don't see him, he's implied. There's this goodness going on. It should, it should help us, it should help us be very skeptical about coming to rash judgments. When something bad happens, it's easy to come to a negative conclusion. How many of us wait it through, look back two years later with a very different view of what just happened, you know? When we look back in hindsight, I, I, I know it's certainly true for Suzanne and me, I'm, I'm, it's hard to believe it wouldn't be true for all of you. We look back at, you know, what took place 10 years ago and think, Jesus, I just didn't see. You know, there was so much more going on than I realized. Um, so poetry's giving us that, okay? Um, any questions? I guess I have one. Yeah. Because I followed them because I did not like it. And it was a bad ending. Mm -hmm. But what you're telling me tonight, it sounds like Shakespeare was trying to tell all the people of that time when he produced it and had the play made. Teach them about how bad a life, when, once you see visually how bad a life can be, 
and how people can be transformed through a bad situation. I guess good. Do, I do believe good comes out of bad. I don't see it there, but yeah. it does seem like Shakespeare yeah. is trying to show yeah. the people of that time yeah. through a play. Yeah. Not just his time. Remember, Plato, Shakespeare, I, I just think, it, Shakespeare and Dante, to me, just saw depths that most of us don't see. I mean, that's it, their great gift to us. Remember, Plato's critique was, it's only the poet who gets out of the cave, who sees the eternal things, who comes back in, who can literally represent those things, but show the reveal the eternal at work in them that he wants back in his city. Shakespeare knew that critique really well. So it's not my claim. It's not just for his time. Shakespeare's greatness rests on the fact that when you look at Dante, Dante's a medievalist. He's looking at Florence. You can't read Shakespeare without realizing you're on the threshold of modernity when feudal, the Holy Roman Empire is falling apart. Each of the states is taking on its own powers. Each one of those states is taking on absolutist powers they didn't have before. England is a monarchy with absolute power. France, Spain, Portugal, you, anywhere in Europe. Shakespeare's dealing with a great number of regimes and he's faithful to those regimes whatever their differences are, but he's showing us something peculiar to that regime that's being answered by something eternal. So anybody who reads the whole of Shakespeare should come out aware of what I'm gonna call more Catholic. Yeah. That we see this great variety of people, great circumstances, ethnic customs, all these different, all's well takes place in France. We're not in, we're not in Merchant of Venice, we're not in Venice, we're not in a commercial republic, we're in a monarchy. But he shows us something peculiar to that monarchy that's extraordinary. It's an answer to the problems peculiar to that monarchy. What Portia does is, is an answer to the problems peculiar to that. So when you read all of them, you go, holy cow, it's not just for his time. He's showing us something eternal. Somebody reading Shakespeare 100 years from now, if, I, if he's reading them well, should, yeah, should find. Same with the Bible, if you read Christ. Christ isn't speaking just for his time. God, he's God. In fact, he keeps saying we should be making our judgment on concerning things here on this earth according to eternal realities. We should be careful when, when we don't do that. He's not speaking to his time. <laughs> He'll be as, <laughs> how can he be less important if he's God 100 years from now or 500 years? Shakespeare's giving us a wisdom about things here that's timeless. It's wisdom. It's what wisdom is. Or at least that's my claim. Okay. The themes. I want to I get to, let's turn to uh, All's Well. I want to just go through a couple of scenes and then I have some questions for you all for next week when we finish it. Can you go to All's Well? Remember that um, the, the two speeches that I most wanted you to hold on to when we, when we met last week on Act 1, Scene 1, Line 160, Proles has been debunking virginity. 
He's, he has nothing good to say about it. He scoffs at it as if there's no worth. In, indirectly, what he's doing, this is, this is going to be interesting. Indirectly, what he's doing is giving himself an excuse to have sex with women. I hope that's clear. You know if he's going to debunk virginity like that. In fact, everything he does later is going to prove it. A man who makes that argument indirectly is making an excuse so that he can have sex. And that's what he does. I mean, he, he's just all show. Helena responds to him in 160. Remember these words. She's meditating on virginity and says, not my virginity, yet there shall your master have a thousand loves, a mother, a mitzvah, a friend, a phoenix, an enemy. I mean, she'll, this, that is, what we see in Helena is that she has this wholeness of, this is absolutely crucial, she has this wholeness of love that's not contingent, conditioned on the sexual act. Because when men and come together, men and women come together in the sexual act, it can very often involve trading. You know, a man will want his pleasure, will a woman give or not, if she wants her pleasure, you know, it, I mean, it, it's, it's not an easy thing. Um, it's an intense pleasure, a lot is involved in it. It, it makes men and women aware of the, the, the tensions between us as men and women. Um, so the sexual acts is in, in so many of the plays is a focus of thing. She's saying here, not my virginity yet, she describes this. So she's making clear that she has this love that's not contingent on something accidental. And her whole life in the play shows it. Um, shortly after that, she gives that speech where she says, about two, 210, our remedies often ourselves do lie, which we ascribe to heaven. The faded sky gives us free scope, only doth pull backwards our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. So often it's a lack of faith in a God that prevents us from risking enough. By the way, I want to underscore this. In our world, everything we do in our world is almost contingent on not losing anything. Insurance, buckle up, do everything you can to, to avoid any risks. I mean, the, the entrepreneurs are the ones who take the big risks, and usually they benefit or they go under. But in our world, we want to have everything backed up. We don't want to risk. It's too frightening. We want to have control over everything. She's making it clear that she's willing, and she'll show it later when she goes to the king, she is really willing to risk everything, trusting in heaven. Think about the enormity of that risk, how deep it is. How many of us have the courage to do that, particularly involving things in our family? It's a tough thing to do. What we're going to learn in, the, in all the works that we're reading is once the tragic hero or even the comic heroine like Portia, once you enter that space, you're alone. As much as we want to read a book, how to do it, as much as we want to get advice from somebody else, it helps. It's true that every set of circumstances is unique, induplicable. No matter how much help we get, at some point we have to risk. And when we do that, we enter into a darkness. It's a mystery. We either have faith and humility to go through, or we back off. She should, this woman, the way he presents her, she has this extraordinary courage to go through with this, okay? Now, to, to help answer the, you know, we're gonna have to deal with this question, whether she's um, Machiavellian or not. Shortly after that, the, the clown makes clear, act one, scene three, that his reason for marrying is self-interest. Act 1, scene 3. Um, um, 
In Isabel's case and my own, services are no heritage, and I think I shall never have the blessing of God till I have issue of my body. For they say, barn, bairns, children, are blessings. Tell me thy reason while thou will marry. My poor body, madam, requires it. I'm driven on by the flesh, and he must needs go to that devil driven. That is, either he's going to have sex loosely, which could be a problem, or he gets married. Is he marrying for love? Absolutely not. So Shakespeare's presenting here in the opening two extremes. One, one guy who's full of words, who, blo who blows virginity off, and the other guy who blows marriage off. They're both debunkers. They're both modern. They're in their heads, finding no value, no worth, in, in, in really in love, as we're finding it embodied in Helena. Go ahead. See what I told you? See what I said? No, she knows me very I know, I know she does. <laughs> this proves it. <laughs> no, I, it keeps making it sound like, like she is so um, related to heaven. I just don't see her that way at all. I see her as a very conniving woman with her own agenda, and even as a mother. So it's real hard every time I hear you talk about it in such a positive way up there. I know. You just don't see it. I know. Wait, give me. It's self-serving. Wait. Okay. Wait. Wait. When we get to the end, I'm, I'm going to make as strong a case as I can. If you're going to disagree with me at the end, just be ready. Be ready to give me evidence because I'm going to be doing everything I can to, to give evidence from the text that something else is going on. So we've got to go to the text, but let's put it together. And, and when we get to the end, for anybody who's, who's going to take that position, because Shakespeare's clearly raising it. She's, she, she's, she knows what she's doing. And the ending, all's well that end well, is so suggestive of the ends justify the means. He's clearly got Machiavelli on his mind. She, in, in support of you, support of you, she says in that last speech, whoever strove to show her merit that did miss her love, that is, she's saying, nobody, nobody can carry through with this completely unless they love. But then she says, the king's disease, my project may deceive me, but my intents are fixed and will not. So she's got a project. This is in support of you. You and I are together this far. <laughs> this is her, so she's got a project, okay? Is she Machiavelli? And just, now, um, um, the countess in 1 3, 135. Hears from a steward that Helen has been talking. He overheard her talk about her love for Bertram. And the Countess is shocked, I think, because she's concerned that Helen, here, Helena, this is partly an answer, Cheryl. Helena is conniving. Because think about it, if in court, what woman wouldn't want to marry a guy above her? Because she stands to gain everything. So hold on to that. So Shakespeare's partly dealing with that here because the countess calls her forward and forces her, says, I'm your mother. If Helen who admits that, she can't marry Bertram. So she's really stern and saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And finally, she gets on her knees and says, um, 184, this is act one, scene three, roughly, 184, 85. Finally, she says, then I confess here on my knee before high heaven, before high heaven and you. By the way, it's not me introducing this language about the divine. 
Everywhere through the play, she's constantly making allusions to God, the divine heaven. So I'm not trying to um, make her something she's not. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be as faithful as I can to her as, as Shakespeare presents her. Here am I knee before high heaven and you that before you and next unto high heaven, I love your son. My friends were poor but honest, so is my love. Be not offended for it hurts not him that he is loved of me. She's completely disinterested. He doesn't even know that she loves him. I follow him not by any token of presumptuous suit, nor would I have him till I do deserve him. Yet never know how that desert should be. I know I love in vain, strive against hope. Yet in this captious and intenable seed, I still pour in the waters of my love. She has no, no good reason in the world's terms for loving him. But that's not going to stop her. I still pour in the waters of my love and lack not, God, God, sorry, not to lose still. Thus Indian-like religious in my air, I adore the son that looks upon his worshiper, but knows of him no more. My dearest madam, let not your hate encounter with my love for having where you do, but if yourself whose aged honor sights a virtuous youth did ever in so true a flame of liking, wish chastity and love dearly that your Diane God was the virgin goddess, was both herself and love. Who do we... I'm not aware in all my reading of literature of a woman who stands as firmly on her virginity as Helen does and still loves, absolutely. This isn't contingent on anything. This is her heart completely. But if you yourself, whose aged honor city sights of virtue as you, did ever so true a flame of liking, wish chastely and loved dearly that your Diane was both herself and love, oh, then give pity to her whose state is such that cannot choose, but lend and give where she is sure to lose, that seeketh not to find that her search implies, but riddle-like lives sweetly where she dies. She's She's, she's going to offer her life to the king. She's ready to give up herself. Let me stop for a minute because I want to go into some other passages. I want to move this forward because we've got to look at, I've got to raise some serious questions here. Before we go any farther, can anybody recall anything in the play right now that would answer Cheryl's concern? Is there anything that she does that makes it clear to us that her love is disinterested, that she's not there for the money to advance herself, that her love is genuine, and because it is, she's doing everything she can to fulfill it. Remember, Bertram's going to set the conditions. She doesn't. She's going to receive this letter, and, and he's going to set these impossible conditions. That's why I brought up uh, Griselda from Chaucer. Because remember, her husband kept testing her, and she kept obeying or trying to hold herself to her vows that she would be obedient to him no matter what. So he, he, he puts her through these awful trials. She's absolutely obedient. Helen is doing the same, but she, um, she didn't set the terms. He did. He said, I'm not going to bed you until. So he put those conditions on her. She didn't. Is this easy for her? Can anybody give, remember, any examples that would illustrate that she's not just doing this for herself. Anybody? She could have had any of those other perfectly suitable men, and it's, it's a few of whom were quite willing to take her. Right. Absolutely ready. 
it's, it's, I mean, it was one of the first things that came. Is everybody aware? Every one of those men wanted her. Every single man would have been glad to have her. She refused every one of them. She loves Bertram. Any other, any other things that go on that, that, that support what seems to be this wholeness of love that she carries for this man. Have you read it? No, but I'm a teacher. <laughs> One of the rules of this class is you have to you have to give concrete evidence for whatever position you're going to take. Which is not possessive. Yeah. Well, I've just noticed that Act One, C One, two twenty-five. Okay. She's speaking. Uh, our slow design when we ourselves are dull. What power is it which mounts my love so high that makes me see and cannot feed my eye? So she's, she doesn't probably understand her love. She just thinks it comes from above. Yeah. Yeah. If it's love indeed, this is one of the opening lines of Anthony and Cleopatra, we're not, is it, when you say to somebody you love them, Will those words ever be able to capture the depth of what you feel inside your soul? If what I've been maintaining all along, that each one of us is made in the image of Christ, the anima naturalite Christiani, the natural, the natural um, Christian soul, if he's the word and the word exists in every one of us, how many of us are capable to get to that word in anything that we do with each other? We so often torment it, cut it up, frustrate it. You know, sometimes we get to it gladly. But how easy, it, how, I mean, how easy is it to get to that word when the source of it is ultimately divine? I mean, to me, it's a, it's a wonderful line, Mary, that there's, she's aware that she can't account for it. It's beyond her, but, but she knows it, and she knows she's in love with this guy. Um, and one of the ironies for us is, is we know that he, he doesn't even come close to deserving it. That's why I've given this image before. We can criticize him. This is sort of one, this is, did Christ come here because we deserved him? So often we go through life getting angry at somebody else because we, we think we deserve more. When somebody mistreats us, Christ came because we deserved him? Dante has this wonderful line at, um, where he's talking about Beatrice and he says, women who have the intelligence of love Hold on to that line forever. Women who have the intelligence of love. How many people see through love? And if that isn't clear, put two people next to each other and put hate in one person's soul and ask what that person sees in front of him going on. Will that person see what another person who sees through love see the same thing? If you're looking through eyes of envy or pride or hate or bitterness, are you gonna, will your eyes be able to see the fullness of what's going on in front of you as if, as if you carried a complete love in your heart for whatever that was? I hope that's clear because the, the, the disorders in our hearts affect how we see. And um, over and over again, Helena keeps talking about this love that she has, you know, that, so we've got to, I mean, we've got to answer, I mean, to me, it's the great question, Cheryl's posing it, is, is she acting out of self-interest? Is she really, 
acting out of love. And we've got to wait to put the whole thing together because there's so many other scenes that are going to write, that are going to go to directly to her question. When she finds out that she's the reason that he's going to go, yeah. Go say it louder, Doc. When Helena finds out that she's the reason that Bertram took off for Italy um, and is going to the wars, she not only blames herself, um, but when he writes and says, as long as you're in France, I'm never coming back. So no France for me if you're here. And she says, okay, that's it. I'm leaving. I don't want Bertram to be denied we're going to get to that we're going to get to that passage so I'm glad that Doc, you're all aware of it when she gets the news that Bertram has fled I'm going to wait I don't want to comment I want to read it because it's too important but that's the passage we'll get to it in just a second Helena goes to the court <clears throat> with the purpose of healing the king she goes to him this is um, act 2 scene 1 about line 100 she says <clears throat> now I'm going to read this and I want everybody to pay close attention okay what's going on you all know what blank verse is blank verse is unrhymed iambic pentameter there's five beats per line okay the ten syllables that's a form of music for Shakespeare it's like um, the, the, what do you call it, the sections in a piece of music, the score, the measures, the measures yeah. So if it's 2-4 or 4-4, four, four, you know, every measure will consist of that. That's the principle of harmony. That exists in poetry. Every poem has an underlying meter, a measure. For Shakespeare, it's, it's iambic pentameter, penta five. It's got five feet, ten syllables. There's an accent on each foot, so with ten syllables, there'll be five accents. Okay, it's music, um, but it's unrhymed, okay? So you'll hear an order and a beauty to the lines. We already know that from Othello. We know it from, certainly from Portia's speech on mercy, remember? So the, all of his plays are written in um, blank verse. He'll slip into prose very often when he's dealing with common people, like Paroles or, you know, one of the more common folks, or, or a, maybe even a scoundrel, but he'll slip into prose, but generally it's blank verse, okay? She says, um, the rather will I spare my praises towards him, knowing him enough. On his bed of death, many receipts he gave me, chiefly one, which is the dearest issue of his practice. This was the most important thing her father discovered. Okay, this is Act 2, Scene 1, line 100. And of his old experience, the only darling he bade me store up as a triple I. You know what the triple I, you've seen that in a cult. So Helen is associated as having this extraordinary power of understanding, of wisdom that she inherited from her father. So like Portia, again, it's a father inheriting, giving, passing on something to his daughter. <clears throat> Some special wisdom. And the special thing that he came to that she's coming to the king with, hoping that he'll, be, he'll welcome her. And you know his, all of his responses are to 
put her off. He's not going to do it. He says, all the latest physicians, that is, these are the scientists, these are the men who've been most recently educated, the scientists know what they're doing, um, they haven't been successful. He wants nothing to do because he feels he's going to be humiliated. This woman's going to do this. And so he keeps saying no. Um, now, he says no, line 125, my duty then shall pay me for my pains. I will no more enforce mine office on you, humbly entreating from your royal thoughts a modest one to bear me back again. He says again, no. Um, he's going to ask what she will risk, and she says she'll risk her life. But um, listen here. She says about 135, what I can do can do no hurt to try since you set up your rest against remedy. He that of greatest works is finisher oft does, them, oft does them by the weakest minister. So holy writ in babes hath judgment shown. When judges have been babes, great floods have flown from simple sources. When great seas have dried when miracles have, be, have by the greatest been denied. Off experience fails, and most often there were most it promises, and off it hits where hope is coldest and despair's most fits. I must not hear thee, fare thee well. He's getting impatient, get away. Um, inspired merit, so by breath is barred. It is not so with him that all thing knows, as tis with us that square our guest by shows. Lots of people go through the motions of believing in God and don't really trust him. As tis with us that square our guests by shows, but most it is presumption in us when the help of heaven we count the act of men. Dear sir, to my endeavors give consent of heaven, not me. Make an experiment. I'm not an imposter that proclaims. So is there anything that she's doing that she doesn't associate with God's help? No. But what's just happened here? What's going on in this exchange between her and the king? She is. Did you hear anything? She's just not taking no. She is not taking no. Shakespeare slipped into rhyme. He's not done this before. Did you not hear it? I was trying to trying to go by it. This whole exchange takes place in rhyme. He's been reading in blank verse the whole time <clears throat> in this moment where she's risking her life she says he says what are you going to put up in this she says my life is, is this a self-serving woman is, she's she's going to put up her life if if she fails she's dead but during this exchange the the verse slips into po into rhymed poetry why I wish we had done Chaucer, and it's just interesting in the Francis course, we, we were going through the medieval stuff we picked up with Chaucer. There's almost nothing Chaucer writes that isn't in royal couplets. Every two lines rhymes, A, A, B, A, 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 B, B, C, C, D, D, you know, every two lines, it's a couplet. Every couplet rhymes. No matter what's going on, he rhymes. Most teachers are going to go, it's a royal couplet. Why did Shakespeare slip into rhyme here? Signify inspiration. Can you go anywhere with that? But well, he's taking us to a higher level. There's something more sublime happening here. And so it deserves the extra the dignity or, that, that you get from yeah. the more formal structure. Yeah. 
let me try to flesh this out because it may seem odd to you. If you read Thomas, um, you know that the, print, the Trinity is present in everything in creation. There's nothing in creation that doesn't show the marks of our God. I don't want to get, that's a philosoph- I don't want to go there right now. But they are, they are present in everything that is good, three principles, what he calls a mode, an order, and a form. The mode is what it is, a tree, a person. The, um, the form is its operation. The operation of a tree, different from a human. And its form, its end, its purpose. You know, the purpose of a tree is different from the purpose of a human. Everything in creation has it. Let me put it differently. If you walked outside in your backyard and you saw the beauty in a flower, and you saw the beauty in a bee, and you saw the beauty in a tree, and you saw the beauty in your wife, maybe even a wife seeing the beauty in a husband, if you could put it that way. <laughs> if you saw that in all those things, what would you conclude? What's going on? Wouldn't you say there has to be some common source or they couldn't all have it? That there is order everywhere? How often do we go through the world feeling the wonder that we should because there's this beauty and order everywhere? If you're reading a Chaucer poem, but now we're reading Shakespeare, we've been reading blank verse for two and a half acts, and suddenly we enter this period where Helena's offering to heal this man, a healing. Lefeu is going to say at the beginning of the next scene, Act, act 2, Scene 1, um, sorry. I've got two texts here. God bless. Where's the... Um, where He says... When, oh, Act 2, Scene 3. <clears throat> Just after Helena heals the king, we move forward, and she gets to choose. And that's where, we, where she gets to choose between these men. They all want her. She rejects them and then says, Bertram's my choice. But the opening line is, Lefeu, they say miracles are past and we have our philosophic persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. So he's saying miracles don't happen anymore. Okay? Now, we've just gone through an experience where Helena's offering her life to heal the king. And during that exchange, Shakespeare slips into rhyme. Why? I think it goes exactly to what you're saying, that um, there are moments as if we enter a liturgical space, something holy. The order is there at every moment. Do we hear it? Do we see it? So often, no. We don't have the eyes. We don't have the ears. It's not an accident. He slips into verse here, rhyme. It's his way of showing there is this order, this beauty, this order that's taking place right now that takes it to another level. And I'm sure, I'm sure that if you went home and you read this in the silence of your rooms, where, that you would not have heard it. Because it's drama. It's meant to be seen and heard. That's why I keep telling you when you read the lyrics, read them aloud. We're meant to hear them. We're, we're corporeal creatures. We're supposed to involve our bodies. So what happens in this moment is that we're taken into what we could call a holy space. Something is happening. 
And the result of it, we're going to see in a minute, Lefeu is going to say, people don't believe in miracles anymore, but Helen has just performed one. So where did she get this power? We're not talking about an ordinary woman. What Shakespeare's showing us is this extraordinary person doing this extraordinary. We're back with Portia. Something, somebody likes. She's doing something. The men? Bertram's running. Parolis is running. Oh, God. Okay. Um, she gets her choice of the men, and she chooses. I don't want to go through this, because I want to just quickly get to a question. Um, she choose, She says... Um, she leaves Diane, who is the Virgin Goddess, and she chooses um, the imperial power, the king. I, I mean, her lover. She's choosing love over virginity. And it's at that point she chooses him, and this quarrel ensues. Now, I've got a, a couple of questions, and then I want to go to Act 3, Scene 2. You know... I, I, we don't have time to do this, but I want to try to put this together quickly. When she chooses Bertram, Bertram refuses. And the king says, I'll make up whatever she lacks in the way of wealth or importance. He says, no, he, he will not love her. Even though he went to, this is the presumption of men again. We're here dealing with the arrogance of men. Um, he went to the court saying, I go in subjection to my Lord. He went with the understanding that he was going to give obedience to his king. Now, these three men are willing to marry her. Bertram says, she's beneath me. I'm not going to do this. He keeps giving arguments. The king is very patient. And then finally, the king says, you marry her or, or you'll understand my wrath. And it's that point when, when Bertram knows he's in trouble, he gives in. And you know what happens after that? He runs. I've got a question here, and then I want to read that passage that Suzanne was referring to. What happens in this scene is we see a slight unmasking of Bertram, right? In what happens between the king and him. We see that he wasn't as good as his word, and the king has to pressure him to do this. So he's not the man we see. He seems to be. And at the end of that scene, Lefeu and Parolis will come together, and um, Lefeu is going to question Parolis about his integrity, and we're going to learn from Lefeu that there's something lacking in that man, that he doesn't seem to be the person he is. Parolis, he seems to be all words. Okay, so we get Bertram, slightly unmasked, um, Port or Parolis, slightly unmasked. You know that at the end of the play, towards the end, when they get to Italy, all of the lords are going to come to Bertram and say, Parolis is not the man you think he is. We will show you who he is. They unmask him. We see him. For, he's a traitor. He gives up the whole army. He gives them all this information that would lead to their death. Um, he, would have, he would have caused their defeat. He, they all would have lost their lives. He gets unmasked. In the very next scene, Bertram gets unmasked because we see him go to this woman promising her all these things. And we know that as soon as he has sex with her, he's gone. Now, why does Shakespeare set up those scenes the way he does in parallel? Bertram has a slight unmasking. Parolis has a slight unmasking. Then Parolis has a real unmasking, finally complete, and then Bertram too. What's the relationship between Parolis and Bertram? And let me put this differently. I began by saying, I don't think we read very well, generally. We do not. 
Is Shakespeare showing us something in the way that he relates those two men in these two episodes? Is everybody clear? Do we learn something about Bertram from Parolles? And the fact that those two scenes are lined up, unma slight unmasking, slight unmasking, full unmasking, full unmasking. Question for now. For next week. Okay. Um, I want to go to that um, passage and then um, I've got a final question to leave you with. And, um, Act 3, scene 2, line 105. Act 3, scene 2. She just gets the news that Bertram has run. Now remember, he told the king he would marry her. And, and Parolles in the next thing says, I wish we had, I don't have time because I want, Parolles says, have a wife? Are you kidding? Go to war where a man can win his honor because what man is going to gain any honor in marrying a woman? So Parolles is doing all he can to encourage him not to marry, to go fight. If you're a man of honor, what honor is there going to be to be married to this drudge? Basically what he's saying. Um, and he flees. Okay. Now she gets the news. And remember, Bertram says, this is Act 3, Scene 2. When thou can get this ring upon my finger, which never shall come off, and show me a child begotten of thy body that I am father to, then call me husband, but in such a then I write a never. And she knows he will never return to France. And according to him, they'll never consummate this marriage. So those are the conditions that he puts on her. She doesn't put them herself. And lots of women, lots of women, I think, would say, are you kidding? Who do I want to marry this jerk? Lots of friends of the women would say, what? are you kidding? Who do I want to marry that guy? Lots of women would say, she deserves better. That's just a fact. She's not going to stop there. Those are the conditions she puts, he puts on her. Okay. Now, when she gets the news, this is line 100, Act 3, Scene 2. Till I have no wife, I have nothing in France, nothing in France until he has no wife. Thou shalt have none, Rosilia, none in France. Then hast thou all again, poor Lord, is it I that chase thee from thy country and expose those tender limbs of thine? Now remember, very often we can misunderstand something because when we're watching characters, we might question their motives. This is a soliloquy. So we have no reason not to think she's speaking the truth. These are thoughts she has to herself. Um, and even she gave them some, I mean, we, we know that these are thoughts that are consistent with what we've been hearing from her all along. Is it I that drave thee from this sport of court where thou, remember the sport of court, it's where all this sex goes on, where thou was shot at with fair eyes to be mark of smoky, where thou was shot at with fair eyes to be the mark of musk, smoky muskets, you're going to leave this sporty court where you can engage in, all these women are going to want you, and go to Italy and fight a war where you're going to be likely killed? Um, to be the mark of smoky muskets, O oh, you leaden messengers that ride upon the violent speed of fire, fly with false aim, move the still piercing air that swings with piercing. Do not touch my Lord. Whoever shoots at him, I set him there. Whoever charges on his forward breast, I am the caitiff that do hold him to it. 
And though I kill him not, I am the cause. His death was so affected. Better twere I met the raven lion when he roared with sharp constraint of hunger. Better that all these things should happen to me, all these bad things, before this happens to the man I love. No, come thou home, Resilian, whence honor but of danger wins a scar, as off it loses all. I will be gone. My being hears it that holds thee hence. I'm, my being here is what keeps you away. Shall I stay here to do it? No, no, although the air of paradise, although the air of paradise did fan the house and angels officed all, I will be gone. That pitiful rumor may report my flight to consolidate thine ear. Come night and day, for with dark poor thief I'll steal away. Now just briefly, um, characterize Helena here, anybody? What's she doing? To what? Genuine yeah. Sorry? She's praying for him. She's also taking responsibility for everything. She's taking everything on herself. She's taking everything on herself. Okay? She's like Christ. The whole thing is on her. How many women would do that if a man did what he did? She's taking everything. She sees herself as the cause. She's going to take this on. Um, so how do we look at her love here? This is not um, Griselda in Chaucer's world. This is a woman who's dealing with some guy who's in lots of ways not very likable. And she loves him. And he put these conditions on her. She's going to meet them. What she's going to do right now is go on a pilgrimage. The next thing we learn, learn is that she's going to write the countess and say she's on a pilgrimage to, um, to the shrine of James. She sees herself as a pilgrim going on a pilgrimage in penance for what, this, for what he just did. Okay. So let me go back to my question, but I want to go forward. Um, I want to read one thing and leave you all with this um, question. We know that when she gets there, um, um, she will meet this, this um, maid and her mother, and, um, sorry, I got, and she will, oh, it's, it's where she, she and the maid arrange to, um, for this plot, um, yeah, act Three, scene seven. Now, let me just quickly. They've all gone to Florence, Italy. So they've left France to go to Italy. We know that Italy is where the Renaissance started. There are going to be these wars there. Helena's going to meet the widow and her daughter. And Bertram is so smitten by the daughter that he wants to have sex. Helena's asking the, the mother to have her daughter get the ring off of Bertram's finger and to let... Helena sleep in her place, okay? So Machiavellian or not, there's the question, okay? But I want to, so is everybody clear? That's where the play is going. We know that when they get to Italy, these men are going to 
tell Bertram that he should never have trusted Parolles and they're going to unmask him. And Bertram is telling all these men about how fine these women are and he's going to take the soldiers off because he's been declaring his love for this woman and he's ready to have sex with her. She knows it. They're ready for it. Helen has met the, the mother and the daughter and she's just made these arrangements here. I want to look at these and then end. Act 3, scene 7. This is an exchange between Helena and the widow and the widow admits she, she stood in good fortune, but she's lost her fortune, but she's a woman of integrity and she's not gonna do anything that will compromise her integrity. And she says the same thing of her daughter. Her daughter will not engage in, so camp sex or, you know, men do it to women and, and the women do it to men. Line 15, take this purse of gold, let me buy your friendly help thus far, which I will overpay and pay again when I have found it. The county woos your daughter, lays down his wanton siege before her beauty, resolved to carry her like a victory. Let her and her fine constant as we'll direct how, tis best to bear it. Now his important blood, his importunate pressing, will not deny that she'll demand. Anything she demands, or anything he demands, will not deny that she'll demand. If she asks for something, he'll give it. A ring the, the county wears that downward hath succeeded in his house from son to son, some four or five descents since the fa first father wore. This ring he holds in most rich choice, yet in his idle fire to buy his will, it would not seem too dear, however he repented afterwards. How wise is she? So long as he stands to gain and to have sex with her, he'll offer it, even if afterwards he knows he'll regret it. Um, the widow, now I see the bottom of your purpose, Helena. You see it lawful then. It is no more but that your daughter, ere she seems as one, desires this ring, appoints him an encounter, she'll get the ring from him, and then meet with him. In fine delivers me to fill the time, herself most chastely absent. The, the daughter will be gone, Helena will take her place, and, and she'll consummate the sex act with Bertram, while Bertram thinks it's with the daughter, okay? After to marry her, I'll add 3,000 crowns to what is past already. And you know, this is so good, when everything returns to France, the widow's gonna come in and the men, the king, is gonna look at her as a whore and disbelieve her and think that she's been manipulative, Machiavelli. He's gonna threaten her with the rest. And he says to her, tell me the truth or you'll die. She says, I will not tell you. So once again, it's a woman who's willing to give up her life for the honor that these two have, women have with each other. But right now, these two women are making this plot. And she says, I have yielded and struck my daughter how she shall uh, persevere that time and place with this deceit so lawful may prove coherent. Every night he comes with music of all sorts and songs composed to her unworthiness. It nothing steads us to chide him from our eaves, for he persists as if his life lay on it. He wants sex with this woman. Why then tonight let us assay our plot, set the plot in motion, which if its speed is, is wicked meaning in a lawful deed and lawful meaning in a lawful act, where both not sin and yet a sinful fact, but let's about it. Now here's two questions for next week to add to what I've already, huh? She rhymed again. She rhymed again. 
Oh, good for you. Good for you. Um, here's my question. Um, when I look at an American culture, it's constant that we see men offering their love for women. Diamonds, houses. Um, it's rare. It's, I can't think of an instance of a woman, movie, television, advertisement. I can't think of an image in American culture of a woman offering her love fully for a man. Here this woman is doing these extraordinary things. And here, when the two women get together to plot out what's going to happen, they talk about it in terms of what seems like a sinful, wicked deed when it's not. So my question is, is what they're doing wrong? Because it's described as a sinful. What was the act scene again? Sorry, give me. Cause I, I, it's 3-7, isn't it? 3-7, hold on. 3-7. Um, why then tonight let us carry out our plot, which if its speed is wicked meaning in a lawful deed and lawful meaning in a lawful act, where both not sin and yet a sinful fact. Now, is she Machiavelli? Is she self-serving? Is she using this guy? Is she using this woman? Is this Machiavelli or is this an extraordinary kind of love on the part of a woman for a man um, that's absolutely selfless. And let me, let me add this just quickly before we go. Uh, you know, up until, the, up until the modern world, the tradition of dealing with romantic love between a man and a woman was called um, amour courtois, courtly love, courtly love, in which tradition, the man always declared his love for a woman and gave his life to her, like his liege. He did everything for her. We're on, the modern, we're on the verge of a modern world in which that courtly tradition is gone. The men are all scoundrels. The heroic, the heroic tradition is gone. The men are going off to battle to fight for their nation. They're going in vain glory. They're going for their own glory. Shakespeare's not showing us men. In Henry V, he's going to show us a heroic king doing heroic deeds. This is not Henry V. This is Helen and Bertram. In this play, that heroic tradition is gone. And what we've got is a woman offering what seems to be this extraordinary wholeness to the love she has for a man when he doesn't, doesn't deserve it. So is this a wicked thing? Is it Machiavellian? How are we to look at this? That's the question I'm want to take up next week. What I'd like to do is finish this play next week and start Anthony and Cleopatra, which is the beginning of it. So if you don't get along in the reading, don't worry about it. I just want to start. Is she Machiavellian? How do we look at this love? Okay. See you guys next week. Stay warm. Stay healthy. Period of life we're talking about, any sense of